Hello, baby. Want a kiss? Welcome to the Experimental Film Podcast with your host, Ken Hess. Teaching a parakeet to talk is fun, but the old method took too much time and patience. This record is specially designed to teach any healthy, normal parakeet to talk by using a scientific new method that is acknowledged to be far superior because a carefully trained voice, specially chosen for excellence in clarity and diction, repeats over and 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 over the same words, the same phrase, in a manner that most parakeets are most likely to imitate. Check experimentalfilm.info for information, interviews, and episodes. For the next few seconds, this record will be silent. This podcast is dedicated exclusively to experimental film and its makers. Welcome, everyone, to Season 4, Episode 2 of the Experimental Film Podcast. Today's guest is Gerald Haybarth. Gerald is an artist and animator currently serving as Associate Professor of Art at West Virginia University, where he heads the Electronic Media Program in the School of Art and Design. He holds an MFA degree from the University of South Florida and a BFA degree from Parsons School of Design in New York. His works have screened at numerous national and international venues and festivals, including the Tampa Museum of Art, the Huntington Museum of Art, the Festival Las Instances Video, and the Stuttgarter Filmventer Festival for Expanded Media. In 2010, he founded the West Virginia Mountaineer Short Film Festival, and he currently resides on the outskirts of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the Experimental Film Podcast, Gerald. Thank you, Ken. Great to be here, and uh, thank you so much for the invitation. It's a real honor. No problem. Thank you. And um, let's start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. Sure. So my name is Gerald Haybarth, and um, well, I was born and raised in uh, Maryland, right in the middle of uh, the state, and kind of a very typical suburban uh, small town. Um, as you mentioned, I went to uh, do my undergraduate work at Parsons School of Design um, way back when in the, uh, the mid-80s, and uh, I got uh, my BFA degree in painting, um, so I, I didn't get into animation until quite a bit later uh, in my career. Um, after Parsons, I, uh, I moved back to Maryland, and then for um, about 10 years, I, I, I lived thereafter in Chile, in South America, where my mother uh, is from. And uh, I was painting down there and, and doing my artwork, um, and it was a, a fantastic experience. And um, uh, after about 10 years, I, I realized that I needed to make a change, and I decided to pursue um, my MFA degree. And I, I went into that degree uh, as a painter also, and that's where I got into animation. I was exposed to some experimental animators um, during that uh, during those years, and uh, that was really the catalyst that got me into making the the time-based work that I make now. So my um, orientation to animation and the moving image really comes from a foundation of a sort of a fine arts foundation um, with, you know, an, uh, an emphasis on painting uh, and other art forms, of course. But I, I like to make that contrast to, um, you know, the idea of animation coming from sort of an entertainment industry uh, orientation. And um, and so animation for me always, you know, growing up, like like most people, was cartoons that I saw, you know, on Saturday mornings, um, and I really didn't know what experimental um, animation or film, for that matter, really was until I got to graduate school and uh, and was exposed and started learning about about that whole world that I, that I didn't really know even existed. Um, my experience at Parsons as an undergraduate was very, I guess you could say, formal. It was sort of traditional Bauhaus. Uh, uh, orientation with an emphasis on formalism uh, as opposed to like a postmodern kind of uh, orientation. Um, although, of course, living in New York City, you know, I was exposed to a lot of stuff. And um, so that was a, a really rich experience also. But when I got to graduate school at the University of South Florida, that's where um, this whole other world of sort of the moving image art 
was opened up for me. And uh, so I've been making animations ever since. Um, I, I still paint, uh, but it's not um, no longer sort of the principal activity. And it's really in service of making the uh, the animations that I make. And that, that's also grown to um, move into uh, video as well. Um, I'm not really interested in those distinctions, you know, whether it's a video or an animation. It's just, you know, I'm interested in the idea of, um, you know, the image coming to life and uh, creating a, a time-based experience uh, through whatever means um, that I happen to be working with at that time. You know, Parsons School of Design doesn't, mm -hmm. I, I don't know, it doesn't really scream art. It screams, uh, you know, yeah, fashion. Right. So yeah. I mean, how in the world did you get there and decide to major in painting? <laughs> yeah. I didn't even, well, I didn't even know you could. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I haven't checked in, so I don't, in a while, so I, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what's going on there right now, but I think you're right. You know, it was it, the, um, the type of school that it was in the mid eighties was very holistic. And, um, uh, so a lot of my friends who I'm, I'm still in contact with now are involved in a lot of other types of, um, art. Uh, so a lot of my friends and peers study commercial art, um, graphic design, uh, which of course was very different at that time. Um, fashion, I knew a lot of people who were in the fashion, uh, in the fashion track, um, illustration was big there also. And so I was in the fine arts, uh, you know, area of emphasis or, or, um, uh, focus. Um, but it was relatively small within the school. Um, but the artists that I learned under were serious, uh, fine artists, painters, sculptors, um, like I said, I really didn't get into uh, filmmaking or animation until much later, um, but there was that that traditional fine arts uh, program as part of you know the, the the Parsons experience, and we all went through a very traditional and again sort of very um, modernist foundation program. So we all took the same classes during the first year, and then we all went our separate ways, um, you know, sophomore to senior year. You know, I've heard a lot of people say uh, something about University of South Florida's uh, arts program, and they have a, a pretty mm -hmm. vibrant film community down there as well. Um, what made you choose University of South Florida, being from, you know, sort of the northern end of the country? Yeah. Well, you know, when I, um, when I decided to go to graduate school, I was still living in Chile at the time. I, I put out a bunch of applications. And um, I mean, quite frankly, South Florida was the best offer uh, in terms of um, assistance and, and scholarship uh, money. And uh, and I like the program. I like the people there a lot. Um, there, it, it is a, a really vibrant program. It certainly was at that time, and I'm sure it still is. And um, it was a whole different world for me, very, very, very postmodern um, in orientation. And um, and it was a whole different way of thinking about the art world and making art and uh, art's role and function in society. And um, yeah, it was the, I guess it was th those reasons and others. Um, I, you know, I, I got married uh, when I was in Chile and my wife really liked Florida. Uh, uh, she was from Chile. And so um, part of it was the, the Latin community and, and that sort of cultural environment and support uh, so those were, I guess, the primary reasons. I also, uh, I, you know, I applied to several schools and that, um, there were a couple that I was aiming for that I didn't get into. So, uh, but I'm, I'm really happy that I went to South Florida. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So, um, you now live near Philadelphia, which I got to tell you, if people don't know this, that's a big area <laughs> for experimental film. And in case, yeah. you know, uh, I mean, do you, do you get involved with the local experimental film crews there and, and so forth? They are the, the other artists. I, I get, I would have to say, honestly, not as much as I should. Um, you know, I, I still work in West Virginia and I, I make this crazy weekly uh, 300 mile commute. Um, and so I, I would say most of my professional activity is still conducted in West Virginia. Um, but sure, I, I get to the, uh, the, the, the galleries and the museums here in Philadelphia when I can. 
Um, but I would say that my 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 window and uh, my connections to the world of uh, experimental film and animation have um, happened during the course of my tenure at West Virginia, and also through a film festival that that I guess as you as you mentioned uh, that I founded there. And so a lot of the connections that I've made have come through that, uh, through that, you know, that experience. Yeah. You know, Philadelphia, if I'm not mistaken, isn't that where Man Ray and um, Andy Warhol yeah. both were yeah. from? Yep. Yep. And um, yeah, two big, big figures for me personally. Um, and also uh, the Brothers Quay. Uh, 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 oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. They're also from Philadelphia, I believe. Um, they were yeah, as I was getting into animation um, uh, and exploring different types of animation, uh, those were a couple of artists that I was looking at a lot, um, as well as uh, the Czechoslovakian animator uh, Jan Schwenkmer, who I guess was a a big influence on on the Brothers Quay. Um, so yeah, there are definitely some Philadelphia connections. Yeah, in fact, if people don't know, the Quay brothers were, oh gosh the really dark kind of um, yeah. eerie uh, stop motion mm-hmm. stuff, you know, with the, the little figures and things. It's very cool stuff. I love to watch the Quay brothers videos, but um, you know, it's um, yeah. In fact, that's, yeah, that's, that, that's what I would ahead, like sorry. to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. It was, it was that, 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 that idea of creating a, a world, you know, sort of a world unto itself. Um, and a world that was very dreamlike and surreal that really resonated with me and connected, I think, with uh, a lot of my own impulses and the things that drive my work as well. Um, and then Jens Schwenkmer also, uh, and a lot of the, the, the East European animators um, were really steeped in that sort of surrealist tradition and, uh, and just great great craftsmen of course in terms of the animation the techniques and um they they were i think really uh i guess influential uh for sure in terms of inspiration i would say more than anything just you know inspiring um through through their example you know what what what's possible and and what could be really compelling yeah in fact that's a good question for you at this point who were your big influences on your you know not just your animation but also your painting which i guess is now yeah sort of evolved into some of that animation right right well you know early on um uh, a big one for me a big a big figure for me is sort of a towering figure still actually was was um Cezanne Paul Cezanne who was uh, uh, uh painting at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century and um you know i'll never forget uh, I have a terrible memory, by the way, so if, so you may you may catch me <laughs> uh, on a few um, things I can't remember today, but I'll ne- I, I do sometimes remember things that people say and they kind of stick with me, and and maybe it's just because I kind of intuitively recognize some essential truth about it. But I'll never forget one of the, one of my professors at Parsons um, uh, talking about. I don't, I don't know if he was talking about Paul Cezanne precisely at that moment, but he was talking about sort of the fallacy of looking at um, Renaissance-inspired or based painting and sort of that traditional Renaissance um, perspective uh, kind of space and thinking of that as realistic. And I'll never, I'll never forget how he said that, um, not ver- verbatim, but just the idea that, you know, in order to see the world like that, you would have to be not only a camera, uh, so you couldn't have two eyes; you could only have one. And moreover, you couldn't move, and you you, you would it would be like looking through a hole in a fence. Um, and there could be no time because that's that's just the way that the world would look through that hole in a single instant. And and I don't know if he asked the question or if it was just something that I thought at the moment. You know, you know, how many of us really experience the world like that? And uh, I always remember that as, um, I, I guess, uh, destabilizing my own, my own previous notions about representation and what's real in terms of uh, visual experiences in, in, a, in a painting context. And that was one of the things that, that um, 
really was motivational in terms of me moving away from that kind of traditional approach to representation, to visual representation. And, and I think it's still, it's always stuck with me in terms of uh, the moving image and the idea that even though the work that I make is often very abstract and irrational and uh, dreamlike, um, that there's a kind of realism there, I think, that is uh, more realistic than the most kind of representational thing that you might see, just because it it has a broader embrace of the, a sort of a wider idea of human experience rather than uh, this, this idea of sort of a single moment in time. Well, you know, you mentioned uh, looking through a hole in the fence, was, which is interesting because you're, um, are they called zoetropes? That's kind of yeah. what you. That's kind of what you do is you look through a hole in the fence, and the picture sort of yeah. unfolds for you. So I think that's that's kind of interesting that you picked up on the hole in the fence thing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I've made a couple of those. Those are you know, fascinating early animation devices, and um, and you know, of course, what's key there is the 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 frame. But then the separation, right? You have to have that separation between the holes as the zoetrope spins. And there's just that, that, that momentary pause that allows us to put those images together to create something that's actually meaningful to look at. Otherwise, it would just be a blur. Um, so that, that, that phenomenon is just a, a fascinating uh, one for me. Um, so, yeah, the zoetrope, uh, yeah, a, a fascinating early animation device um, and the, the whole idea of sort of, of, of exploring perception as um, you know part of what I'm trying to do as an artist is is important as well. Uh, another painter that I got really interested in uh, sort of towards the end of my time at, at Parsons was Philip Guston. So if, if there was one painter, you asked about painters, if there was one that um, was maybe the, the most influential to me that would be um, that artist, Philip Guston, who, if you're not familiar with him, was um, went through several periods in his development as a painter. And he, he was painting roughly from, I guess, sort of the mid-1920s right up until uh, the 1970s and early 80s. I'm not sure when he, um, he's no longer alive, but um, he went through several periods, and uh, I, I think he's often best known for his abstract expressionist work. But then he took this major turn in late 60s, early 70s, I don't know exactly when, where he um, just completely turned his work around and started to make these very cartoonish um, paintings that were based upon his personal life experiences and just painting things around his uh, around his world, things in his studio, um, things in his his immediate experience, which was you know completely opposite of the kinds of principles and values that I think people associate with abstract expressionism. And it was um, it was kind of a you know it was it was like heresy, and um, and I always admired that that sort of courage to. Um, you know, do what uh, what your conviction moves you to do, um, and also the idea of making work that is trying to get at something essential about about your actual authentic experience of the world. Um, and he talked about that a lot. He talked about how you know the work that he had been doing previous to that had had become kind of empty, and uh, he he wanted to make work that was more connected to the actual world, which a lot of artists were doing in other mediums, right? Uh, that was happening in filmmaking and music and poetry, you know, during that whole tumultuous time period of the, you know, the 60s and the early 70s. Um, and even before that, um, but for, for him, it was that uh, letting go or re rejection of abstraction as, as sort of the ultimate kind of uh, value in painting and getting towards something more authentic and more uh, personally connected in his work. And that, that's something that, that, that has always also stuck with me and something that I try to um, keep in the forefront as I work as well. So you're the head of electronic media at uh, 
West Virginia University. What exactly is electronic media? What does it cover? Well, it, it it's basically um, digital arts, animation, and video. Uh, it's more experimental in orientation, which, as as you might expect, um, from what I've said so far, uh, as opposed to uh, commercial in orientation. Uh, so there, we have you know, of course, a graphic design area, and there are a lot of time-based um, things that go on there, uh, motion graphics and uh, and that type of animation. But what happens in my area is more closely associated with experimental approaches to uh, to animation and, and video as well. Um, so in my curriculum, we, we also look at uh, some um, experimental filmmakers as well as animators, uh, both early animators, you know, going all the way back to the birth of animation to uh, contemporary video artists. Uh, so it, it is really oriented um, in that regard. Um, but of course, you know, students want to learn skills and they want to uh, pursue um, all different kinds of careers. My, I have students that want to be filmmakers. I have students that want to work for Disney and, uh, and Pixar. And I have students who don't know what they want to do and, and students that um, want to work in a commercial environment. And so it's always a, a, a trying to strike a balance, uh, introducing students to this other world that they're, that they're not aware of um, for the most part uh, in most cases um, because their orientation and their, uh, their exposure to the world of filmmaking and animation tends to be more connected to the entertainment industry um, and striking a balance though with the needs to um, for them to, to to leave that program with some skills that they can build upon in whatever direction they, they choose to go in this is kind of a bizarre question but seeing your yeah your history with um, you know your bachelor's degree master's degree and, and now your professorship who do you think gravitates toward experimental film? I mean, what, what kind of person gravitates toward that? And I'm going to see if your experience is the same as mine. I'm just curious as to if you've seen a pattern. Yeah. Um, in the students or, or just generally? I would say in the students. In the students. Um, you know what? Uh, you might be surprised to find out that, that sometimes the students that are most um, – that become most interested and and explore with more vigor, I guess, uh, are some of the non-traditional, non-art students. So once in a while, I'll get a student from engineering or computer science or some other college. And a lot of times those, those students who have, I guess, less acquaintance with the art world um, are more apt to, to explore the idea of the moving image as an expressive medium rather than one that is uh, more restricted in terms of like being narrative based, for example. Um, sometimes it's those students that are the most receptive to, to those kinds of experiences. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the non-traditional art students actually. Yeah. Uh, and what, what, what about it? I, I guess it's, um, you know, I think for, you know, more generally, it's, it is that idea of, I think the, the, the art world, the artwork being one uh, that is thought of as an expressive medium rather than necessarily focused on uh, traditional storytelling, you know, putting forward or emphasizing concepts or emotions or experiences that are not restricted to a traditional idea about, about narrative and narrative structure yeah i'd have to agree that it seems kind of like a um uh, an area that attracts people from all different walks of life right. i guess you'd say you know especially and, and this is uh, this is going to be uh treading lightly here but i would say from my observations that experimental filmmakers people who are attracted to it are usually very intelligent people I mean, not that other filmmakers or other artists aren't, but it seems to be a common theme with experimental filmmakers that they're all 
really smart people, very, um, a lot of times, uh, introverted, introspective, and, and very, you know, either mathematical or very psychologically oriented and very meticulous, very detail oriented. It's, it's a very odd mix of, um, I don't know what you'd call it, features or attributes that, mm-hmm. that one has that sort of creates this extreme in experimental filmmaking. I mean, have you have you sort of observed yeah. that as well? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think that um, the, 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 the I, I, don't, I don't know that there is a typical experimental filmmaker or animator, but I guess I would add to what, what you've said. Um, may, maybe the, the typical experimental filmmaker animator is also one that is um uh, uh maybe maybe a little um what's the word i'm looking for um anxious or um less accepting of of uh formulaic ways of making whatever it is that you're making in other words that i mean obviously we call it experimental because it's experiment because you experiment right you you the the one of the uh, essential characteristics of this work is that it's it's always trying to do something new. It's always trying to uh, connect an idea or an impulse with something that one has not seen or experienced before. And I don't know if that's uh, anxiousness or maybe it's just uh, being, um, you know, not not just less inclined to do things the way that quote unquote they're supposed to be done, and um, and. Yeah, I'm certain that that goes along with a certain kind of intelligence also, um, that desire to see something that is new, uh, something that has maybe, not, not that, as you said, you know, not that traditional filmmaking can't be deep or uh, compelling and that it can't explore sort of, I guess, more fundamental aspects of the human experience. It certainly can. Right. But I think that um, an experimental filmmaker is going to have this added maybe impulse to, to 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 just resist being put in a box, certainly, and and having to do something a certain way and having to follow a certain kind of structure. You know, that that idea of like the sort of the traditional narrative arc, it's so it's, it's wonderful and it's it's been around for so long because it's so powerful. And, um, you know, to tell, to tell, to, to tell stories is essentially human. Right. And so I think we've connected to a tried and true, uh, and resonant structure, which we call a, tr- a traditional narrative. Um, but it is a structure and it's restrictive. And I think that, uh, experimental filmmakers and animators, um, have, um, you know, a basic need to move to, to, to to, to move beyond that or to explore alternatives to that. And in my case, for example, it's, it's partly because that doesn't align with my experience of the world. Now I'm trying to make things that kind of feel like life. And the idea of a traditional narrative structure is it's totally synthetic. Like it's not real at all. Uh, kind of like that idea of pictorial perspective, like it looks great and it's, it's deceiving in a good way, and it it, it 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 seems realistic, but it's not at all the way that I experience the world. And uh, and I, I I couldn't write a traditional narrative if you paid me a million dollars. Like I I also just don't have the the patience. I think maybe experimental. Uh, I, I, you know, we're generalizing a little bit here, but maybe there's an essential impatience that experimental filmmakers and animators also have. Um, that is a commonality. I'm not sure. I don't know. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's kind of funny. You should sum it up that way. Uh, because I do have that impatience and impetuousness mm-hmm. and, you know, I feel that as well. And I've actually noticed that in other experimental filmmakers whom I've spoken with. And it's like, there's always this, uh, you know, it's not, it's not, wanting to break the rules necessarily it's just no it's it's they're so hard to follow i can't write a three-act play yes. for example <laughs> i mean i, I could never I you could know never do it. to me you start and finish and i don't know the stuff that happens in between makes sense to me but it's not necessarily 
you know, I don't think of a beginning, a middle and an end. I tried to learn that structure and I'm like, I just, I just don't get it. You know, I don't get it. And it's not that I think there's anything wrong with that. Maybe I watch movies and I think, you know, that's a beginning, middle and end subconsciously. But I, I, to sit down and, and write a story like that is, is beyond me. It's beyond my grasp. I just don't get it. I just tell a story. I don't necessarily think about structure or, you know, tradition or anything like that. And I think there is a, I think that is a common thread with experimental filmmakers and experimental artists of all kinds is that we just can't, you know, and I hate to even say in a box because, you know, there are great filmmakers who, who aren't necessarily in a box. They're all very creative people. Undoubtedly. But, you know, it's just, there's just a different feeling about it. Like you say, that's not the way I experience the world. And I think that's a great description of it. I think, um, I I think that's probably what attracts people to experimental filmmaking and experimental art in general is that uh, they need to express themselves in a non-standard way. You're listening to the Experimental Film Podcast with Ken Hess. And now back to the show. Yeah, yeah, and and the and the ones who make traditional, who do traditional filmmaking and really excel at it are are masters, right? They're masters of that craft, and, and they're able to communicate and express the ideas and the uh, the principles that they're focused on through that structure very successfully. But uh, like you, I, you know, I, I my my brain doesn't work like that, or I don't have the patience for it. Um, you know, when I get to a juncture in an artwork where if I was making a traditional narrative, I, I might have to go in a certain direction. Like, I, I just can't, you know, I, I always want to think of, like, the work having 10 possible directions and then and then taking one of those or maybe trying to take several at once. And, and you know, that just doesn't work for certain kinds of, of narrative in, in a certain kind of narrative structure. Um, but then, you know, the, the, there's also, I think, uh, a virtue in being able to work within a structure and make something amazing and new and fantastic within that structure. Uh, so for example, like, um, one of the things that I got another, another, like, a, another early, uh, influence for me in terms of painting was, um, a painter named Elizabeth Murray, who was active in the, uh, in the in the 70s and 80s uh, mostly um, and what I was really drawn to her uh, work um, what really drew me to her work was the way that she was trying to make paintings that didn't necessarily have to exist in a rectangle right so I mentioned Philip Gustin Philip Gustin always painted in the rectangle he always res- respected that that structure um, and Elizabeth Murray made paintings that went all over the place. They, they kind of, they were very organic and they sort of grew and, um, they, they broke out of that. She, she broke out of that, that structure. Um, and I was really inspired by that. And I, I tried to do that in a, in a lot of my early painting. Um, and so for a number of years, I kind of went back and forth, you know, between the rectangle and, and non-rectangle, rectangle, non-rectangle. And it was, that was right around the time that I got into animation, you know, which now time becomes a component of the artwork. Is, is it a rectangle? Is it not a rectangle? Is it a single image or is it a series of images? Because the way that I got into animation was, again, sort of very non-traditional animation orientation where I was simply painting and taking pictures of my paintings as I made them. And so time became, I guess, like a sort of fourth wall, right? Or a fourth dimension um, beyond just getting outside of the rectangle. But I would go back and forth, you know, and um, there was always that idea in the back of my mind that, you know, it's really just a choice. And if you choose to stay within the rectangle, and if you can make the magic happen within that rectangle, that's that's fantastic. Uh, I, I always remember um, a, a graduate student, uh, a fellow grad uh, in that program, who talked about uh, the idea of sort of like the the basketball court. And at the time, this was like the early 2000s, so Michael Jordan, I think, was still 
kind of the, the sort of the basketball king at that time. And um, that idea that, you know, what, what, what's so amazing about Michael Jordan is that he can perform these sort of physical, um, these physical actions, which are, which are phenomenal or almost miraculous because it happens within the boundaries and the rules and the, uh, the, the restrictions of the basketball court and the, and the, the basketball time and the rules of the game. And so I think, you know, there, there is certainly, I, I don't think that, you know, whether you're a boundary breaker or not is necessarily, uh, I don't think that one is more virtuous than the other. It's a choice and there's a kind of magic that can happen when you challenge those boundaries, but still stay within them or when you challenge them and make your own rules. Right. It's like, um, I used to have this quote that I spent my childhood learning how to color inside the lines and the rest mm-hmm. of my life learning how to color outside of them. <laughs> that's right. So that's right. And you know, it can be wonderful either way. Yeah. But for me, yeah, I can't stay within those lines. I just can't do it. And, and again, it, it's because it, it does not align with, um, you know, the way that I experience the world and, and, you know, in, in, in my animations, I want to, you know, one of the things that I'm, that I try to do is to, among other things, make something that feels alive, that feels like, like life, like thinking, like thought, um, like the process of thought or the experience of time and all that goes with it. Uh, so it's not just about, it's not just about an optical experience, even though I make an image, it's about what's happening in my mind, what's, it's about memories, it's about impulses, it's about fear, it's about all of these things. And, you know, how can you make something that, um, that, that is capable of representing, you know, all of that, um, or, or making some kind of, making something out of all of that, that, that has this, that has a similar kind of rhythm or, um, or, essential life force, if you will, uh, that, that is kind of like an analog to that experience. And that, that's, that's been, you know, all that goes all the way back to Cezanne, you know, that idea of like the painting being, um, a representation of, of an experience, not just a, not just a single image, but an actual embodied moment, a human moment, uh, in time. And, um, and for me, that that can't that for me that can't happen in a traditional kind of narrative structure. Right. You, Gerald and I met through the experimental film fest, and he entered a short five-minute film into it named Voyager Birdman, and it is an animation, and it's really interesting because I have an interpretation of it before I read his description. And I'll, I'll tell you, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. I'll tell you what that is. It's a funny thing. When I heard the NASA recordings and some of the old Mm. recordings and, and kind of a, it's, it's kind of random in a way. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I saw the animations and I thought, you know what, if you were on another planet, a distant planet, and you were monitoring, just like we do, we listen, you know, um, if you were listening to, radio signals, broadcasts, and so on. You were just collecting Mm. uh, electromagnetic uh, vibrations. This is what you would pick up from the Earth. It's kind of random, non-timed information and images. Because it's over a distance, you would lose some of the uh, context. And it was like, you know, that's pretty interesting. And then you mentioned Voyager in it, and I thought, hey, that's kind of cool because... To me, it's a, it's almost like a lost communication or mm-hmm. found communication, if you will. You know, it's just something that someone has collected randomly, and it's as if you were on another planet and and made this collection from it, from the Earth's yeah. communications. Sorry, I just, that's just what I thought of when I watched it. This is Voyager Launch Control. The count now stands at T-minus 59 minutes. I don't know, I was in my 20s or 30s. I read a book by a guy named Ernest Becker called Denial of Death. I don't know if you've ever heard of this book. It was Perhaps the extraterrestrials of the future would be able to reconstitute that 
data into thought. Because who knows? You know, who knows what's possible in a thousand million years? Okay. Well, I, you know, um, I think that's a, a wonderful interpretation, and uh, I can't remember exactly what I wrote, but that's that's very much uh, related to some of the ideas that I was thinking about in making that. Um, so you mentioned uh, the, so the Voyager space probes were, um, a, I guess, a big part of my childhood. You know, my, at the, when I was growing up, my father was a, like an amateur painter, and he worked for he worked for a company. Um, his day job was he he worked for a company called APL Applied Physics Laboratories. Um, and he was not a scientist or an engineer. He he was an equal employment op- officer, which was um, he he worked in like human resources and was focused on making sure that you know people were taken care of, you know, within the organization and that people had, people were treated fairly and equally. Uh, he, he was, um, uh, very interested and he dedicated his career to, to that kind of work. Um, but he would bring home these photographs of, you know, the things that the applied physics laboratories were, were involved in, you know, and so the, the, so that, uh, organization made, I think they made rockets and um, and uh, or contribute, you know, made parts that contributed to to rockets and uh, and satellites. And they had some involvement in the Voyager space probes. And so he would bring home these photographs of like, you know, this is this is late 70s. Right. So <laughs> no Internet. Um, and it, he would bring home these photographs of Jupiter and and Saturn. And it was like you know, just jaw dropping, just jaw dropping. Uh, and it was so impactful for me growing up, seeing those images and thinking about this spaceship. And for me, like now, 40 years later, 50, I don't know how many years later, many, many years later, I'm still thinking about that spaceship and it's still out there. It's still moving. And it's, it's really cool. You can go to NASA and you can, you can, um, you can find out exactly where it is and how far away it is and how long it's been traveling and you can see the trajectory. They've got a really cool interactive uh, um, website where you can kind of play around with it and see where it is in space. And, you know, that idea that, that I was introduced and connected to this, this machine that we made in the late seventies, that was just a kind of a crazy idea that we're going to send this thing out to visit these outer giant planets of the solar system and then it's going to continue forever you know and and famously uh the void the two space probes they carry the golden record um and that was produced by carl sagan and a number of other people and it carries messages from earth it carries um sounds uh, music recordings images but they're all encoded and uh, I, I don't know. Uh, the idea is that some, you know, some extraterrestrial being might one day, probably um, many, many, maybe billions of years from now, um, capture that thing and and decode that record and learn about this world, which of course will be long gone by then. And just that 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 kind of impossible idea, but the conviction that there might be some value in that and some possible result, you know, even though the chances are like, I don't know what they're like a million to one <laughs> that that will never happen. Cause that thing will probably just float in space forever and, and, and nothing will ever happen, but who knows um, that sort of crazy, impossible, futile gesture is something that I always think about. And, uh, and it's just, it's just so fascinating to me that I that now as an old man almost uh, I'm still thinking about that. I'm still having that kind of same experience or that same connection. And those were things I was thinking about a lot when I was making that work. Um, and uh, I, I use that image um, partly as kind of a symbol of you know wh- who we are as human beings. You know that we that we kind of move through space and time, and we're trying to make some kind of connection and um, as futile as that might be, uh, there's something essential that drives us uh, to want to have some kind of connection beyond, you know, beyond uh, 
what most of experience what most of us have experienced in our in our daily lives. Uh, so that was certainly something I was thinking about. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think that's a great great interpretation and uh, makes sense. So when you create a film like Voyager, Birdman, or any of your other works, I've watched uh, several of your others. Um, mm-hmm. What do you? It's and it's. This is a, maybe a difficult question to ask anyone. Where do you come up with the ideas for them? Do you do you form the idea and and just start working, or do you actually you know kind of outline it, storyboard it, and work on it like a traditional film? I I'm just kind yeah. of trying to get that process because young filmmakers you know want to know these kinds of things. And I guess maybe even yeah. not so young filmmakers. Uh, you know, just trying to discover the process. You know, as an instructor, uh, I try to teach um, a, a you know a wide swath of techniques and approaches. You know, with the idea that you know something is going to click for somebody and it's going to be different for everybody, um, and that includes storyboarding. But I, I couldn't, you know, just like I could never. Uh, and and even though I, I my, some students will hate me for this, but. Uh, even though I suggest that to a lot of people, to a lot of students, and sometimes I'll give assignments where I'll require, hey, make a storyboard, make some kind of outline, you know, to, so that you can see a basic structure that you can act upon, that you can build on. I, I don't do that in my own work. I, 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 could, I could never do that. Partly it has goes back to that idea of just having a, almost like um, a, um, just a, an aversion to those kinds of predetermined or pre-existent structures. And, and uh, so I, I, that's an easy question for me to answer. I never know what a work is going to be, almost never. Um, there's always a beginning, of course. And, um, and sometimes, sometimes there, the beginning is uh, just a sensibility. But then other times it's more humble. It might be something like, um, I mean, with that, with that work, when I started that, I was just exploring rotoscoping as an animation technique. And um, the only thing that I knew when I started that work is that I wanted, I wanted to make something that was sort of reflective of my, of this, this driving that I'm doing all the time. And um, I wanted to learn about this technique. So I wanted to see what, you know, if I, if I, cause I would, I would uh, photograph and video, uh, take video of, you know, uh, while I was driving, which is not a great thing to do. I don't, I recommend that to anyone, <laughs> but, um, and I, and I, I wanted to learn how to rotoscope cause I had never done that before. So, um, it started out with that and, uh, it just like all of my other works, it, uh, it, it turned many times and it, it, it became what it became. And I, I really like the idea of the artwork having a kind of, uh, like I said, kind of a life force, um, a kind of a resonance for the for the viewer, but then also the idea that the artwork itself is sort of an organ, a living organism that that I'm working with, that I'm collaborating with in a way. And it's just like anything else in life; it's constantly changing. It takes turns. It associations are made, connections are made, and it 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 gathers complexity. And um, and so that one began just wanting to rotoscope and it became about these other ideas of uh, communication of virtuality you know the idea of kind of being disconnected from our you know that experience that we probably all had where you know maybe you're on a long drive at night and you feel like you're uh, somehow kind of floating through the world um, in a sort of voyeuristic way and you're not necessarily connected to your normal sort of experience of your body in in space the way that you do sort of when you're in a room or walking around kind of sort of floating through the world and the possibility now with the entrance of thought and imagination and and um, all of these other things that you experience mentally being connected to this sort of virtual experience of the, or having a virtual experience of the of this landscape um, and that's what it became about um, but then, as I mentioned, you know, c- connected to this idea and this fascination with uh, these Voyager space probes um, and what they may or may not mean symbolically, what, you know, what they what they represent, uh, 
you know, for me and for, for our species, I, I think. You know, when someone, when a guest comes on the, the show and I, uh, you know, I figure out what they do and how they do it, I usually ask, um, you know, if they use cameras, what kind of camera they use and, and mm-hmm. so on. But since you do uh, animations, what sort of animation techniques do you use or do you employ for your work? You know, I, I like to exp- I like to dabble and explore everything. Um, you know, as I mentioned with this recent uh, this recent animation, Voyager Birdman, um, I was interested in rotoscoping. Which, for those listeners who might not know, it's pretty simple technique, and it's not sort of what traditional rotoscoping was. Um, the the way that the way that it's practiced at least in the way that that I did it, which is a common way to rotoscope now, which is basically the idea is like you take video and you draw over it one frame at a time. And you, in that, in doing so, you sort of extract what you want from the video and you turn it into kind of a handmade uh, drawn version of the video. Um, and then you get rid of the video. So you're left with just the drawing. and um, you know, it's 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 a really fascinating technique. Uh, what fascinates me about it is the the idea that you know you can use that that idea of sort of extracting from a, a vis- from a source like a, an original video source, taking something from it but then dumping the rest. Um, right now, I'm making another uh, animation or or group of animations because that's that's one of the thing that one of the ways that I work is where I'll, I just start to play around with things and I, I don't know that they're going to become something or not uh, they oftentimes they just kind of fizzle out and don't really lead anywhere um, or they'll they'll sort of blossom into multiple works but one thing that I've started to do rec- in recent months is I'm taking old drawings from from uh, like 10 years ago and even further back and and animating them um so taking that old image and then cutting it up and and treating it sort of like a cutout or collage animation which is basically uh thinking about sort of these individual pieces of an image that kind of move um and that's the a technique that i'm exploring now just because i thought it would be cool to i think one of the one of the often an impulse is just i want to see how something might look if if it was to move for example uh so the impulse there was i want to take these old drawings and when i made them uh, you know this was before i got into animation and now i'm looking at them and they were they were uh they were collage drawings so they were already sort of cut up and now i'm like well now that i've been animating for for a little while you know what if i go back in time and take those drawings and you know what what might what what would be the next step in that drawing now if it could move and turn into something that exists in time and so you know i, I explore a lot of techniques and usually they're connected to uh, an impulse or or sometimes an idea that that becomes the sort of the dominant theme you know we were talking earlier about um you know narrative structure and you know in the absence of narrative structure i feel like for a work to you know, we all say, well, the, that work is complete because, and if you don't have a narrative structure, you know, where the story comes to an end, it's easy to say that movie is complete because that, that narrative arc was completed and, and the story was resolved. But when you don't have that, there's got to be something that gives it form, right? That, that gives it a kind of structure. And so for me, it's often an idea or a sensibility. And so sometimes I'll choose a technique that that works for the idea, um, but more often than not, you know, it starts just because I want to see what something will look like. So uh, there, there was um, it, just as an example, um, there was I, I did a, a an animation not not too long ago where I um, I went to Peru. I've I've been to Peru several times. I, well, when I was living in Chile, I, I visited Peru several times, and then since then, I've taken students to South America, but to different countries. And I've been to Peru several times, and um, and on my last trip, I was just just really, I mean, I've, I'm always taken by Peru by Inca architecture, and uh, I just had this idea that I wanted to see what these these ancient 
Inca walls that are still standing, you know, would look like if they could move, like if I could photograph those stones and then make an animation out of them, what would that look like? And so, and that was just a simple technique of like photographing those, those, uh, those stones, an individual stone, and then finding ways to put them together so that it works visually. Um, so, so oftentimes the, the technique or the, uh, the equipment or whatever it is, is, is just a question, you know, what, what, what'll, what will something look like and what's a way that I could make that happen? Yeah, in fact, I, I saw those, um, and it looks like you kept the theme of one stone being in the middle, surrounded by other yeah. stones, was kind of your theme there. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that a lot. See, I, I, I'm a guy who looks Thank for you. patterns and things. <laughs> yeah, and right, and, and if you don't have a narrative, then there's got to be some some other glue, right? Right. And uh, and for me, just visually, it was that idea of that cent that center stone. Yeah, you know, uh, that's cool. And the the way that it, the the image then kind of warps and moves uh, while keeping that center that center stone. Yeah, I like. And that. it was it was at the time, you know, it was uh, not to take things in a political direction, but um, but I, I always want my work to have some kind of um, what's it's all it's all about trying to reflect the the world and and certainly um, you know the the, the world that we live in is one that's very politically charged, of course. And this was at the time of, you know, the wall and, you know, walls have just been in our sort of in the public consciousness for the past, you know, five, 10 years, whatever it's been um, in a lot of different contexts. And I just wanted to make something that kind of celebrated the wall, the idea of the wall and that paid homage to these walls that, you know, were built so long ago. Well, not actually not so long ago. They're not that ancient. I mean, the Inca were, you know, they were, um, that was 500 years ago, but still these amazing architects. And, um, and this, the, the idea of the wall sort of being emblematic of this culture that's still thriving, that, that is still maintained, that's still vibrant, um, you know, of the, of the countries in South America that have, that have really been successful at preserving indigenous culture. You know, Peru really stands out for me, at least. I mean, I haven't been to all the countries, but that's one where you you really feel that that historical and indigenous presence wherever you go. And uh, that was something that I also wanted to kind of reflect in that. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. I I really enjoyed those pieces. And what I liked about your art on your site is that. Uh, you have your artworks link and it seems like there's two videos going at the same time. One is more video on the left and then sort of um, what you call it slideshow on the right. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. You get, you get both perspectives, you get some detail and then you get sort of the one that's the flow. So I, I, I thought yeah. that was kind of a neat concept that you came up with there. I, I enjoyed watching those. I guess that's the painter in me. Like I, I, I can't, I can't, even though, you know, I want, I want it to move. I, I still, uh, yeah, I want to hold on to that single image at times, I guess. Yeah. So, um, tell us, do you have a website? I mean, I, I mentioned it, but I, I want you to, to give us the address yeah. and stuff website or other ways for the audience to check out your work on Vimeo, YouTube, or a, a static site. Yeah. So I've got work on Vimeo, um, if you just uh, search for my name, it should come up. But the website is um, www.g and my last name, which is H-A-B-A-R-T-H. So ghabarth.com. And um, yeah, I've got several works uh, that I've posted there. Certainly not all of them, but the, those are the ones that I think I feel the strongest about. Um, greatest hits, I guess. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, thank you for coming on today. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, if you uh, have a new project that you'd like to discuss, please. I mean, I always make this offer to everyone. And, you know, a couple of people have taken me up on it. But um, certainly I'd like to have you back on and, and discuss those, and, you know, because we can discuss a single work if you like. I would love to do that, Ken. And I really appreciate this opportunity. I, I, will, I will take you up on that. Very cool. Absolutely. And thank you for joining us for the second episode of Season 4 of the Experimental Film Podcast. Our guest today was artist and animator Gerald Haybarth. 
please contact me if you'd like to schedule an interview, sponsor the podcast, point me to some cool experimental films, or connect me to other experimental filmmakers. And we'll see you next time. If you would like to sponsor a podcast or schedule an interview, send an email to ken at experimentalfilm.info. Thanks for listening to the Experimental Film Podcast with Ken Hess. Thank you.